Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Today we have a conversation between three top historians for you as they discuss the myths of the Eastern Front. You'll hear from Katya Hoyer and Waitman Wade Bourne shortly. But first, your host, Dr. Alex Ritchie. Welcome, everybody. I just wanted to say super quick thanks to James Holland, Al Murray, Goalhanger Films, and all of you for coming, the independent company. It's 
absolutely fantastic. What an amazing event these guys have put on. So a hand, round of applause. <laughs> fantastic. So we are the gloomy, miserable, depressing side of this whole festival because we are dealing with the Eastern Front. We are the myth busters. And so what we decided to do is we're supposed to come up with some myths about the Eastern Front um, is that, that uh, we'll just sort of go in order, come up with one or two favorite myths, kind of go around the, 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 the group a little bit, have a bit of a discussion, and then um, throw it open to questions so we can learn about your favorite myths and we can try and bust them too. So we'll start with uh, Katya. Hello. Um, I've recently done quite a lot of research uh, for my new book on, on the GDR um, and interviewed people mostly about things that happened in the 1950s and 60s. But the amazing stories that people came out with um, about their experiences at the end of the Second World War um, have kind of taken center stage a little bit whilst I was asking people. And one of the myths that I want to explore is how the Russian soldiers behaved on their way um, from Russia to, to Berlin on, on the sort of counter offensive. Um, because by and large, the, the impression I think that stuck with people um, have been all the atrocities that have been committed. So it's a well-known fact, I think, that many women experienced uh, rape during that time. About two million, it's estimated, German women were, were raped by Russian soldiers. Um, and that's, I think, the side that has stuck. So what I want to address as a myth is that this situation is actually a lot more complex, I think, than, than that image um, that has stuck with people. So I just want to read a, a short uh, section from an interview I did recently with a woman called Brigitte Fritschen, who was born in 1944 um, and was therefore a, a small child, a baby, when um, the, the Russians came to her town. So I'm just going to read this short section, uh, which I've transcribed from the interview. The fact that I'm alive today is down to the following incident, a story which my mother told me again and again. When the war drew to a close, many women were alone at home, and this was the case with my mother as well. Our family lived in Waldenburg, near Breslau, which is now in Poland. The whole neighborhood was terribly scared, when, and they kept hearing, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. Many births were imminent, and there were many small children for whom the mothers were particularly concerned. Horror stories of monstrous people advancing made the rounds. People spoke of rape, and they said that the Russians would also cut the throats of small children. The women did not know how they could protect their children. They gathered all the kids in the neighborhood together in one room. This nursery, as they called it, contained around 11 or 12 children. I was among them, still a very, very small baby. Day and night, the women guarded the room together, sitting like a barricade in front of the door. When the Russians finally came, this was of no use. A young soldier just brutally shoved the women aside with his rifle and vanished into the room. He shut the door behind him, and then there was silence. The women held their breath and listened. Again, the stories entered their minds. Would they cut the, uh, the children's throats? Then the women cried for help, but who might have come? The men were all off at war or had already died. They were only Russians. In the nursery, there was, still, there was uh, a dead silence. All was still. Finally, the women could not stand it anymore, and they opened the door. The young Russian had not cut a single throat. He knelt in front of the little beds and sobbed bitterly. He cried and cried and cried. The women froze and looked on as his tears continued to flow. Eventually, my mother carefully tapped him on the shoulder. He had in his arm one of the little babies. He turned around and cried, uh, tried to explain why he cried, using gestures and expressions. He said the word house, house, over and over in German and then again, mama, 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 and then the German word for tree. 
The Russian, sh the Russian then showed a rope and a noose with his hands. Germans had hung his mother. He had also had a little sister. He mumbled the English word, sister, sister, who had been the same age as the little girl he was now holding in his arms. The Germans had hung her too. The women were so touched by this story that they wanted to give the young man something, even if it was just a little bit of bread to say thank you. My mother never forgot that story. She told me often, again and again, you are alive, you are alive, no matter how bad it gets. And even today, I still tell myself this sometimes. This incident has never left me again. So I think what the story shows is that the story is a little bit more complex than um, what I think has stuck with both Germans and, and in the Western world perhaps as well, of Russians coming through, um, behaving atrociously um, on their way back. But the fact that they themselves have been traumatized and brutalized by the, by the effects of war, I think is something that is often forgotten in this. And, and I think it's, a, it's worth remembering that um, atrocities were committed on both sides. Whitman, do you have anything to? Yeah, so, um, is this working? Can you hear me? Okay, good. Um, and I want to echo um, what Alex said about what a great experience this is. And, and also kudos for bringing in um, this sort of social cultural history um, along with some of the military histories, because I think these things are, are deeply connected, right? Um, and I, I, I will sort of fulfill my role as the, the bringer of grim doom later a little bit more. But I want to talk about one myth that I think um, sort of overlaps between sort of the history of the Holocaust and the Nazi genocidal project and the military history of the Eastern Front. And that's the treatment of the Soviet prisoners of war. Um, just to give you a sense of the scale that we're talking about, um, over two million Soviet prisoners of war died in the first eight months of the war in German captivity. And to put that into context, more Soviet prisoners of war died every day um, on the Eastern Front than allied prisoners of war died during the entire war. Um, to give you another, another way of thinking about it, the death rate of Soviet prisoners in German hands was 57%. Uh, the death rate of allied prisoners in German hands was less than 10, probably around six or so. And if you want to compare that to another place where being a prisoner was not wonderful in the Pacific, um, the death rate of prisoners held by the Japanese, which was clearly not a great experience, uh, was around, if I remember correctly, 29% or so. Um, and the myth that we often get, um, particularly from the German side, is, oh, we were overwhelmed by the numbers. You know, we took all of these prisoners and, oh, woe is me, we just couldn't handle the numbers and it's regrettable, but lots of people died, but what are we gonna do? And I, I think it's, it's really important to push back against that um, by looking at the planning uh, for treatment of prisoners of war. And the planning in the Nazi leadership before the invasion was to have no plan. It was for these people to die um, for, for a couple reasons. And of course, we know, based on the German way of war, that they were expecting, of course, to have these massive Kesselschlachten, these massive cauldron battles, and they knew they were gonna take hundreds of thousands of prisoners. Um, so it's not unexpected from the beginning. And then if you look at the work of um, Eduard Wagner, who was the uh, general quartermaster of the German army, um, and the guidance that goes out, uh, you see things like, um, we will only feed them horse meat. These are things that are written down, right, in orders predating the invasion of the Soviet Union. Um, we will confiscate their medical equipment and use it to treat our soldiers, but we're not gonna let them, which is all of these things are in contravention of, of the Geneva Convention that was signed by, by the Germans. Um, 
You can find things uh, shortly after the beginning of the war. Um, I'm remembering just things from, from prior research. Um, in Hoth's army group, um, he refused to allow empty freight trains returning from the front to carry Soviet prisoners of war farther to the rear where they could perhaps be taken better care of because he didn't want them to get dirty. Uh, he didn't want the train cars to be dirty. So um, you get examples like um, the prisoner of war camp outside of Minsk um, at a place called Drozdy, which uh, held 100,000 human beings in essentially an open field like the one uh, where the 17-pounder was, or the, the anti-tank guns were shooting earlier, um, just surrounded by some barbed wire and guarded by German soldiers. And conveniently, the barbed wire uh, didn't include the stream. So you could sit inside the barbed wire in July of 1941 and watch the flowing waters of the, of the stream go by and not have access to it. Um, and of course, this is a plan from the very beginning. Um, Hitler talks about that the, the Soviet uh, soldier is keine Kameraden. Um, so he's in, intentionally trying to sort of break from the tradition, if you will, of seeing your, your enemy in certain sense as a comrade in the, the battle, right? That we're, we're both sort of soldiers together and once you've surrendered, then there's this sort of compact that I will take care of you in exchange for you, you know, um, ceasing to, to fight against me. Um, but it gets even more complicated than that because we have examples of um, the Wehrmacht participating in the selection and execution of commissars, so Soviet uh, political officers, um, which contrary to the memoirs and statements of all of the generals after the war, was actually something that was carried out quite completely at all different levels uh, of the German military. Um, we also have examples of German soldiers guarding these camps, becoming involved in the execution of prisoners, as well as the selection of Jewish prisoners. Um, and and Jewish, so Jewish Soviet, Soviet prisoners of war are actually selected out and taken off and shot um, and treated differently than non-Jewish um, prisoners. And so I think this is a good place to start because I, I was talking with someone last night and I think it's, I think it's fair almost to, to look at this as a separate genocidal action within this larger Nazi genocidal project because you literally have um, millions of people um, being intentionally starved and or uh, actively murdered um, because of their status as a, as a Soviet prisoners of war. Um, and in the German mindset, um, there was almost this idea that um, a communist uh, has been sort of forever tainted by his uh, you know, association with, with the Red Army or with the Soviets. Um, and this leads to this explicit abrogation of, um, of the customs and, and courtesies of war. And I'll leave it there. That's great, two great myths which we'll discuss in a minute. My myth is um, that the Wehrmacht committed the crimes at Katyn. Um, now we've all probably heard of Katyn. It was where uh, the Soviets actually murdered uh, 25,000 um, uh, Polish POWs in cold blood. I mean, murdered one by one with a bullet to the back of the neck um, after the invasion, uh, uh, the Soviet invasion of Poland, which took, started in September um, of uh, September 17th, 1939. And um, Stalin decided, and it was definitely on Stalin's orders, we actually have the piece of paper that he signed along with Beria and, and um, Molotov and others to, uh, to commit this heinous act, which of course goes against all of the, the basic principles of warfare that POWs should uh, at least be treated with a certain, uh, at least be allowed to live and not be shot in the back of the neck. However, we know with Wehrmacht, as we just heard, uh, did not uh, behave particularly well either. 
However, the reason I'm mentioning it is because, of course, it's one of the really famous myths of the Second World War, um, also because of the way it was used by the Soviets. Uh, when the Germans then invaded uh, the area in which these bodies had been buried, um, and then uh, declared, they, they, they discovered them a little bit earlier, but they made the announcement uh, in uh, 19, early 1943 that they found these bodies. Um, Stalin immediately said, this is absolute propaganda, it's absolutely untrue, completely wrong, totally false. Um, when the Poles said, well, actually, you know, mm, we haven't heard from these guys for quite a while. They seem to have all disappeared just when you invaded. Mm, um, Stalin used this as an excuse to cut off relationship, the relationship with the uh, Polish government exile in London. And this myth and fabrication continued. For example, the Soviets continuously tried to get Katyn mentioned as a Wehrmacht crime in the Nuremberg trials, for example. And Stalin continued this myth, and the Soviets continued this myth all the way up until 1990, when, uh, when Gorbachev, with Perestroika and so on, finally admitted that maybe there was some sort of thing that had gone on. And then finally, Boris Yeltsin, in 1991, passed over the proofs, the, the paper that I mentioned that Stalin had signed, and all these other things to the Polish government uh, in Warsaw, admitting and, and apologizing uh, for this long, long, basically, the cat in lie, as it's now called. However, what's really interesting and really rather scary, and this is why I think this sort of thing is so important uh, to get to the truth of history and historical events, uh, is that Vladimir Putin has now reversed the cat and lie again and is now saying, it was a Wehrmacht crime, we had nothing to do with it, it's all a falsification of history, the Soviets had, had, were, were clean uh, and did nothing of the kind. So I think that this is a, a myth that just keeps, keeps on giving, and, uh, and, and we have a, an example of, of how it was politicized you know, during the war by Goebbels and so on, and, and it's being used to this day. But to come back to a, a little bit of a conversation between us about, about Katya and, and Wedman's um, comments. Um, Katya, I think that's so true. I mean, you've got a war like, like this, there's uh, so much going on. There are, of course, different layers of, of you know, soldiers who behave in different ways. There's so many testimonies of people who said, actually, the initial wave of the Soviet army officers was they were actually really quite well behaved. And then the sort of mass of, of uh, guys show up and the mass rapes and so on happened. And another myth is the myth of Nemersdorf, which recently research had shown Nemersdorf was the, the first um, East Prussian town that the Red Army um, basically retook. Um, so in other words, the first piece of German territory. But the Nazis very quickly took, took it back. And yes, there had been some rapes. There were some incidences of, of, of pretty unpleasant behavior. But then Goebbels got into the, into the picture, started um, mutilating uh, dead bodies, nailing them up on barn doors and saying, taking all these propaganda pictures and saying, this is what the Soviets are going to do. So therefore, increasing the fear and the terror uh, in amongst the German uh, population. Yeah, and I think that's part of the problem is just that the Eastern Front is such a wide, vast theater of war that it's very, very difficult to grasp. And then you layer the layers and layers of propaganda on top, you know, by Stalin, by Hitler, Goebbels in particular, as you say, and it's very, very difficult to discern the truth amongst all of that. Because even, I mean, the biggest problem is actually that when, so say, if you take Goebbels's propaganda on this, and then the rapes actually happen, one side is going to say they didn't happen because Goebbels said they happened, and so therefore this propaganda must be a lie. The other side is then obviously saying, well, it doesn't matter whether the propaganda is there or not, this is what happened. And then you know, afterwards, we're sitting here you know, generations later, people still not really wanting to talk about it as well, um, and discerning what actually happened in this vast theater and, and kind of you know, dividing myth from, from fact is, is tricky in those 
yeah. circumstances I find. And I also found interviewing people, they're more willing to come forward with the story that I've just read out. Stories like that, you'll find people tell you these stories. The other side, not so much. So mm. where, where rapes actually happen or where ma massacres actually happened, people are now still there, will just not talk about it. They'll say this happened to somebody else or I heard that it happened somewhere in my village, but they're not actually willing to talk about what happened to them. Or it's wrapped up in, in uh, words and phrasings that um, are so vague and, and vacuous that you can't really quite get to the truth of what happened. And I think it's, it's particularly a problem with the Eastern Front in that it's so difficult to, to fathom yeah. the scale and size of it all. It's very, it's very true and that's a problem that all of us historians face like doing interviews and whether or not they're, they're really true and, and I've, I've talked to Polish women who were, who were um, hidden in the attics from the mm -hmm. Soviets because you know, they'll talk about it but they were Polish so it's a little bit different from the, from the German experience. And uh, as for the um, Soviet prisoners of war, it, again, this is a, a, a very little known uh, topic. And, and um, I live in Warsaw, just very close to my, well, n near Warsaw, very close to my house is a, a Soviet POW camp, very much as you described, just barbed wire around it. And 30,000 men, St Stalag 333, then became an offlag, died there. This is around about the numbers we're talking about the bombing of Dresden. And yet we know not one single name of, of one of the POWs who's buried in, this, in these graves. We know the names of three Italian uh, officers because it later became an off-flag for Italian uh, POWs, but not one single name. These, these, these men vanished and because Stalin didn't accept uh, prisoners of war, you were supposed to fight to the death, um, they were all considered to be traitors. And uh, so even after the war, it was the Pol Poles who marked these graves and not the, not the Soviets themselves. So yeah, I mean, and you have the, the just an incredibly tragic tale of the very, very few Soviet prisoners of war that survived Auschwitz. Um, because there are some that were actually, that ended up there. M many of them were sent very early on to help construct part of it, and most of them died or executed. A very small number of them survive the war to be liberated, and then they end up being put on a train to a Soviet gulag because they had surrendered. I mean, it's it just these kind of absurd, um, you know, absurd reactions. And I think one of the things that's really fantastic about this particular panel, you know, our, our title, I think, is, is Memory, Myth, and Manipulation. And, you know, it's a great illustration of the historian's task, which is kind of an archaeology of memory, if you think about it. You know, at the, at the lowest level is sort of the ever-elusive objective truth, right, whatever that may be. But then you have all of these layers laid on top of it, you know, at, as a national myth-making layer, even the personal myth-making layer of, you know, my family history, you know, well, I, you know, the Germans were complicit, but not my family, um, you know, and, and having to sort of parse out the truth, and I'm using in quotation marks because it's, it's as I say, ever elusive, um, you know, looking at the different stories and how, do, how is memory made, how is it erased? Um, you know, one of the most, I was, I was talking to um, Alex and, and Katya about this earlier, is I had this very surreal experience in a German archive um, when I was working on my first book, and um, I'll really briefly go through it because I think it's, it's interesting, um, where um, the archivist comes up and is like, somebody has ordered the same file folder that you've worked on. And I, as a graduate student, I was having this oh shit moment of like, <laughs> this is some senior scholar is actually writing the book that I want to write, and I'm, <laughs> I'm totally screwed, and my life is over. And so I said, you know, is it possible that I could meet this person, hopefully, to show that it wasn't someone like that. And the, the archivist you know, said, well, I think we can do that. And it turns out they were sitting right behind me and it was a, an older man and his son who was doing genealogical history. And now I'm like, ooh, 
because this unit was a, it was a regimental history, so a really very, very specific folder. And this regiment had participated in the murder of a thousand Jews in a place called Kripke in Belarus. And I sort of said, hey, uh, you know, why are you interested in the 354th Infantry Regiment? Oh, my father was in this unit. And I was like, oh, uh, what's your father's name? Oh, his name was Berger. I'm like, oh, do you have his information? And they said, yeah. And I went back to my computer. And in another archive, I had actually come across the testimony of their father taken in 1960-something uh, during an investigation of the murder of these Jews in the small town. And I, I, I went back, and I, you can imagine this is slightly awkward. And, and I sort of said, uh, so did you know that your father was interviewed by the police in 1960-something? And they, the, 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 the son said, no, I didn't. And I was like, would you like to read his testimony? And I, I, gave, the, I gave them his testimony. And you could just sort of see this, they're, they're interacting with this past of their, the, this person's father and grandfather that they hadn't, didn't know existed. And it, it, it took some very bizarre turns because the next thing was that the grandson told me, his first question to me was, have you ever been to Vicksburg in the US? And I was like, he's like, I'm a Civil War reenactor, which is a total like, where did that come from? <laughs> um, and then, the, uh, and then they invited me to visit them when I went to Munster, and they invited me out to dinner, which was, a, again, this bizarre experience, because I, at some point I had to tell them, because I felt really bad, and I had to say, you know, the story that I'm telling is not going to be flattering about your, you know, your, your father, because what, I, um, what, the, what he said in his testimony, I'm getting back to sort of the memory piece, but what he says in his testimony is that we would go on these anti-partisan operations where we would disguise ourselves as civilians, by the way, that's, a, that's against the Geneva Convention. Um, but anyway, and we, we went to this old religious building and got and picked out our civilian clothes. This was a synagogue. And it, the clothes were the clothes of the Jews that had been murdered in this town. So this guy had been tooling around the Belarusian countryside looking for partisans in disguise wearing the clothing of murdered Jews. Um, you know, and, I, and this gets the memory piece because I, I, I finally had to tell the father because uh, I felt really, in some ways, bad. I was like, you know, it's quite possible that your father participated in this murder because we're talking about a unit of about 300 guys in a town of 2,000, half of whom were Jews, half of whom were murdered by this unit. So, you know, the odds are not, not wonderful. And what was fascinating from the memory perspective was the father, the father said, so the son of the soldier, said, I'm okay with the fact that my father may have committed this, these crimes. Not in the sense that he agreed with it, but that he sort of had come to terms with the fact that this was possible. The grandson um, was just throwing all of the, well, war is hell, you know, it was, it was brutal on both sides. What about the Civil War, which was a really interesting take for me, uh, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and, and he, he tried to use my experience. Well, you know, as a soldier that, you know, these things happen in war. And, uh, it was very cringy. Um, but again, it's just layers of memory, right? Where like one generation is, is approaching it differently than another. And I'll be quiet, but I, I think it's a really interesting sort of well, you, way to think about you it. You have that on a personal level, but then also on a national level, it's the same thing. You've got basically East Germany trying to portray one version of what happened in the Second World War, particularly at the end of it, where Russia had to be like the great liberator. They couldn't possibly tell the story of two million German women being raped by Russian soldiers and hundreds of thousands of, of, sort of Russian babies being born into this East German state. 
and at the same time portray the, the Russian soldiers as the, the liberators who brought this wonderful new system to Germany and, and you know, to rebuild this, this peaceful socialist utopia that they were trying to build. Uh, Walter Albrecht, for example, who actually spent the war period in Russia um, planning this, this future German government that would be set up, came back with the mission to, to portray this image to the Germans of the Russians as the liberators, but had actually not been there when all of these things happened. So people were saying to him, well, look, you weren't here, mate, when our city got bombed. You weren't here when Russians um, you know, came and, and women sat at home with their children, fearing for their lives, for their, for their children's lives. And now you're trying to tell us how it was. Mm. And these stories were just completely suppressed because they didn't fit into the national narrative. So you've got something like you were just describing on, on a personal and on a family level. But on top of that, the layer of a, of a national history that's being constructed. And vice versa, you get the same in West Germany, where, of course, the um, Americans and, and British were uh, the, the partner, so to speak, in rebuilding Germany. So you couldn't talk about, say, the bombings or anything like that on that scale. Um, and, and that was all suppressed on that side. But equally, they were perfectly happy to talk about Russian war crimes mm -hmm. on that side, at least sort of after the 1940s when, when the Cold War was beginning to unfold and uh, people were less careful about kind of <laughs> keeping, the, keeping the alliance uh, intact. So it's interesting, as you say, it's various different layers. You try and get to the truth and you're stuck there at personal level, at family level and at national level trying to untangle all of that um, and get to what actually happened. And I think you're right that the coming of the Cold War really had such an effect on, on how we perceived that history because, um, you know, when you talk about this, the, so many of the, the Nazi criminals who all of a sudden after 1948 were perfectly okay because we were fighting the Soviets now, not the, not the Germans. In fact, we were using them. And the, and the Soviets did precisely the same thing on the other hand. And, and I find living in Central Eastern Europe and traveling a lot in Russia and Belarus and places like that is that really that whole part from East Germany to, to the East got stuck in aspic in the sense that there was no real historiography because it was all dictated from above. And it's only since 1989 that this explosion of historiography happened. But unfortunately, what we see now, and this is, again, my warning a little bit, is the, is the way in which these histories, these national narratives are being used now in Hungary, in Poland, in certainly in Russia, uh, to rebuild this sort of national identity in which the myth of the martyred nation in Poland or the myth of the, you know, the great Red Army uh, who never did any, any, uh, committed any crimes or anything is all, uh, is all coming back, including the resuscitation of Stalin. So these things have political implications not only in terms of these layers of historiography but also in, in contemporary politics. Katya, another myth. Um, actually, linking into what I was just saying about Walter Ulbricht spending his wartime in uh, Moscow, so my second myth would be that all Germans on the Eastern Front fought for the Nazis. Uh, you got about 5,000 German communists who emigrated to Russia at the beginning of uh, Hitler's sort of period in power, moving to Russia thinking, now is finally the time, let's move to this great utopian new state that, that they've been dreaming about uh, in the 1920s, for example, the KPD, the, the Communist Party published this pamphlet, um, What the Workers Saw in Russia. They, they sent a little sort of um, yeah, group of, of ideologues out to Moscow in the 1920s, and they came back writing up this pamphlet about all of the wonderful things that they'd seen uh, in the factories and in, in society and how everyone lived uh, you know, happily ever after in Russia after the revolution happened. And so the, the German workers, certainly the section that believes in communism, imagines Russia as this utopian paradise that they can now finally move to because you know Hitler has basically given them the incentive to. 
Um, and when they arrive in Russia, they've find out pretty quickly that it's not quite what they were hoping it to be. Um, starts with the living conditions. So people move, they're Germans being Germans. Oh, it's all dirty here and they're not doing things right. They haven't even got proper bread and no coffee. And what is this place? Um, so that's the first thing that you see basically in German, German diaries and letters that, that it just is substandard as far as kind of German expectations went. Um, and secondly, of course, this idea of, of this uh, wonderful ideological utopia where everyone can freely express themselves and, and build the, the community that they that they wanted, they find out pretty quickly that they begin to grate with their Russian counterparts. So to give you one example, the, the Bauhaus architects in Germany who had been sort of at the forefront of uh, art and architecture in, in the 1920s were of course persecuted by uh, Hitler and then many of them left to Russia because they thought you know they'd help Stalin basically build all of these wonderful new utopian cities with, with you know, new, uh, newly designed buildings for the workers and, and kind of especially created community residential areas almost. Um, and then they found that working together with their Russian counterparts who earned about, I don't know, a third, maybe a, a quarter of what they were getting from Stalin's regime, because they were the new kind of star architects and, and they were properly paid and put up by, by Stalin whilst their Russian counterparts were still living in, in the you know, places that they'd been living in before. And, and that pretty quickly leads to conflict. Um, the moment Stalin's paranoia sets in with the purges in the, in the, in the sort of middle of the, uh, of the decade, so from 35, 36 onwards, and then reaching the peak in 37, 38, um, those Russian um, kind of competitors really grasp up on their German counterparts and say, oh, he said this and that over dinner, and, and off they went into the gulags and, and, and into prisons. Um, of those 5,000 German communists that went to Russia, three quarters were not alive at the end of the, the Second World War for one reason and another. Um, so they went over there thinking, you know, this is where we'll be welcome, this is where we can do the things that we've been dreaming of in the, in the Russian kind of brother state, as it were, um, and ended up most of them dead, either in prison or even sent back some of them. So they knew that if they send them back to Germany and basically don't give them Russian citizenship, the Gestapo would pick them up. Um, so there are stories of people, I'm just thinking of, of one uh, person who I'm also picking up in my, in my future book, who basically went um, to Russia, immigrated in 1933. Then the Russians put him in prison, uh, in the famous or infamous rather Lubyanka prison in, in Moscow. Uh, then decide actually, rather than getting rid of them themselves, they're going to send them back on a train to Germany. On the train, the Gestapo officer was already waiting at the Polish border, joined kind of the train and, and took him away, and, and he ended up in prison, in Moabit prison in Berlin. Uh, the Russians, uh, sorry, the Germans then decided, well, he's seen what Russia is like now, he's probably converted. Let's put him back into the Wehrmacht, and he was sent back to the Eastern Front, <laughs> fighting, <laughs> where he ended up back in uh, as, a, as a prisoner of war in a Russian uh, prisoner of war camp. Was then released in 1945, went back to Germany. They went, oh, hang on, uh, you were in, a, you know, in, in the Wehrmacht, so you must be an enemy of the state now in, in the Soviet-occupied zone. So he ended back up in prison there. Um, and when he was finally released, um, he told this story, which the regime under Ulbricht didn't like. 
Um, and so he was put in front of a court um, who heard him and he was still un unrepenting and said, look, this is my story and I'm going to tell it. And he was sent back to Siberia uh, into a work camp. So he was telling the story. As you say, this all came out after mm. the Berlin Wall came down in the, in the mm. 1990s for the first time. Um, and, and when he returned to, eventually returned to, to Germany after they released, East Germany that is, uh, after they released him from that uh, gulag in, in Siberia, he was still telling a story, so they chucked him out effectively, and he <laughs> went to, to West Germany and lived his life there, somewhere near Cologne. Um, but that just goes to show how much these communists were sort of stuck between Stalin and Hitler. They didn't really fit in anywhere, because Stalin didn't trust them. Hitler obviously didn't trust them either, and that's one of the myths, I think, that's or one of the stories of the, of the Eastern Front that's very, uh, hasn't received a lot of attention. Ulbricht himself actually uh, joined in at the fighting at Stalingrad um, with his loudspeakers, sat there on the Russian side um, and was sort of projecting propaganda, German propaganda, over the soldiers, the German soldiers who were um, surrounded there. So you've got these like, starving, frustrated, um, abandoned German soldiers sat there in, in, at Stalingrad and, and Ulbricht is telling them via loudspeakers there will be no more food, Hitler hates you anyway, the Germans have abandoned you, your wife's probably found somebody else, don't bother. Um, and he's trying to get them to give up. And quite famously, Khrushchev, who was there as well um, at the time, he was supposed to look after Ulbricht because once again, Stalin didn't trust him uh, fully, uh, said to him over dinner on uh, one evening, uh, Comrade Ulbricht, you haven't really earned your dinner tonight. Not a single German soldier has uh, you know, swapped sides. So it was an effort that you know, he tried to basically convert German soldiers. Some of them were converted in the prisoner of war camps, but not very many. But it's an interesting side story, I think, in the, on the Eastern Front that isn't, isn't very well explored. We need to take a short break. We'll be back on the Eastern Front in a moment. That whole community of um, Central Europeans that Stalin gathered together to create these new governments. And Stalin, from the very beginning, had political aims on Central Europe. And he had Pol Polish, uh, you know, G the Gmulka types. He had Rakosi in Hungary, of mm. course, Ulbricht. And yet he, he in, in the famous hotel looks, which I've been to, and it's just it's it's hideous. Place. <laughs> and, uh, and very scary because, you know, the, these guys who were bumped off mm. got the sort of knock on the door at five in the morning and off to the Lubyanka in the little minivan. Um, but the, those who survived did get set up in Hungary and, and Czechoslovakia and so on to, to uh, recreate these states in Stalin's image. Um, but it is true that so many were killed. And, and after all, we, we have to remember that Stalin bumped off about 650,000 people in, you know, by his own hand uh, in the purges of 1937. Um, so it's really not surprising that he killed so many uh, communists either. There was also that group, as you said, that in, the, in, the, in the prison camps, like after Stalingrad, Paulus, uh, von Bismarck, very, very famously, who the uh, Soviets recruited to try and convert uh, Germans uh, into fighting against their own side. Another myth. Okay, so I'm going to do something for my next myth. So it's not like a magician, like for my next act. And, um, for my next myth that, that is a former scout I should never do, which is to charge blindly into a minefield. And it's the minefield of collaboration in Eastern Europe. Uh, because I think that, that one of the myths that comes out is that it was sort of the, the mean Nazis forcing the populations of Eastern Europe to support, uh, support them and to collaborate with them. And the reason that I mentioned it's a minefield is because, again, like we've talked about already, it, this, this functions at a, at a variety of different levels, right? You know, so we have um, the national levels. If we look at, at Hitler's allies, which is an area that I think is often quite underrepresented, which is Bulgaria, 
Hungary and Romania, sort of the independent nations that voluntarily signed up to fight with, with Hitler, with the Nazis. Um, you know, and they, they, in some ways they're con perhaps coerced, but when we look at their collaboration, particularly with, um, with genocide and with the Holocaust, it's really important to note that these governments had their own anti-Semitism, had their own reasons for uh, supporting uh, the Nazi genocidal project, the Holocaust, in the ways that they do, but also they do it in many ways on their own terms. So with Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria, each of these countries gets from the Nazis territory that they sort of think they've always earned, that was always part of their country. What's really fascinating is that they treat the Jews differently depending on which one of these territories they come from. Uh, so, you know, for example, with, um, with Hungary, you sort of have the Old Kingdom Jews, the ones that are in sort of Hungary proper before the war, who are treated differently um, than, you know, the Jews of the Transnistria or these regions that are, uh, that are handed over to Romania, Bulgaria, Hungary by the Nazis, where, you know, there's in some of these places, um, you, if you look at um, Romania's treatment of, of some of the areas that it takes over, Romania conducts its own ethnic cleansing, its own eradication of Jewish populations in these newly acquired territories in ways that it doesn't um, for its own Jewish population, right? And that's just at a, a national level. And one of the things that I think is really important about the Eastern Front versus you know, thinking about Germany or the Western Front is that you have a, a constellation of national myths and memories relating to the participation or the experience of the war in these various places. And so then if we move from a national level to a more individual or, or communal level, um, in Poland, for example, there's, you know, Poland, this, this idea of the martyred nation that, that Alex was talking about, um, which on the one hand is absolutely correct. I mean, the, there's immense suffering of, of Poles, both non-Jews and Jews. Um, but going along with this is this idea that, and also we had no part in the Holocaust and the persecution of Jews or in, in support, some way supporting the Nazi state. And, and if we did, it was because we were in, in danger of going up against the wall ourselves. And I think one of the things that's important to point out is that this is obviously far more complex than that. Um, and that there are, uh, to, to, to borrow a phrase from a different sort of area, there's a commonality of aims. In, our, in, our, in other words, there's some places where local local desires of non-Jewish Poles, for example, overlap with Nazi desires. Um, and this is in things like denunciations of expropriation of property, theft, and these kinds of things, informing on Jews. Um, one of the things that I think is, is really important and often overlooked by, by more general public is the creation of an atmosphere of hostility. Um, the idea that there are actually Jews in Poland who buy their way into concentration camps into factory camps, because it's frankly safer for them there than to try to be in hiding on the outside, because they're likely to be denounced or, or simply killed. And so there's, a, I think, a really important element, almost a passive element of um, creating a hostility for, for Jews outside of, um, outside of camps and ghettos. Um, of course, I'm not gonna just pick on Poland. Um, and this is, a, going back to Alex's really great point about how memory is being um, tainted again Right? You can look at things like um, Ukraine, where um, you have a, a large number of individuals, Ukrainian nationalists, who are operating under the false assumption that Hitler will sort of allow them to have an independent state if they, if they collaborate. 
Now, it's also not to say that they're not anti-Semitic, because many of them are. Um, but you have these organization of Ukrainian nationalists, the OUN, and then the, the Ukrainian, um, the UPA, Ukrainian um, army, who sort of support the Nazis. Um, and now after the war, the way that Ukraine remembers them is as anti-communists, right? Because um, they're fighting against, the, 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 in their eyes, the greater evil, which is Stalin and the Soviets. Um, you see this in Lithuania as well. Um, you can see this frequently with, um, you know, these parades of veterans who are walking down the street, and they may be in the, the Waffen-SS Galician Division, which was recruited from Ukrainians, right? Um, and they're viewed in many ways as, as national heroes um, for, you know, fighting against the Soviets, and then the, the second half of that sentence is left out, which is with the Nazis, right? Um, not left out. <laughs> and and, and, and if, there's an, if there's an example of, or a moment where, you know, someone says, hey, wait a second, you know, you were, you were also sort of incredibly energetic about this. It's, well, I was forced to do this. You know, the, the, the Nazis would have shot me uh, if I hadn't. And outside of Poland, which has a different experience, um, the Nazis are, are in some ways reluctant to, to shoot or, or, or persecute these nationalists because they serve a purpose, right? They are, they are a means to an end. And the Nazis in some ways become disappointed because they don't go as far as they'd like them to. Um, but, and this is something that, you know, again, we see over and over again. And you see it in the, in the Crimea now with the, the, Soviet, the Russian invasion of Crimea um, where they're calling the, the sort of OUN Ukrainian nationalists as Nazis. You can see these billboards where they have swastikas and they say like you're, the, these guys, the Ukrainians are all Nazi sympathizers. So they're, um, they're mobilizing this, this sort of myth against them and then vice versa. In these places in Eastern Europe now, these people are still viewed as sort of heroes, right? And there's obviously a lot more that we could talk about because there's this in an incredibly complex, as we said, layered history, you know, over, over time and over space with national boundaries and things like this that you don't necessarily see as, as clearly elsewhere. But I'm gonna stop. Yeah, I, no, I, I, I completely agree. It's, it's, it's so difficult to unpick uh, the Eastern Front because you have the added um, murkiness of the Soviet Union, Soviet structure in places you know, like Lithuania, Estonia. After all, their experience of Nazism as such is like three years, and they, their experience of the Soviet, Soviets uh, is, is uh, 1939 to, to um, 1989. So, so the hatred of, of, of that Soviet Stalinist system is, is sometimes much, much more pronounced. So I think that's th that just adds to the mixture of how, why it's so, so difficult to get to the bottom of what happened in the Eastern Front. And you can have people who behave in one way, one day, and a, a completely different way the next. It's just a very brief anecdote. My father-in-law knew a man who was an absolutely virile, horrific anti-Semite, was an endek in Poland, you know, disgusting, wouldn't have anything to do with him or whatever else, discovered after the war that he'd hidden two Jews in his, uh, in his house. So, you, you know, and I only know that because of a personal story. It wouldn't have been in an archive. In an archive, you would have been this horrible endek anti-Semite. So it's so, 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 so complicated and so multi-layered. My, my final myth, quickly, because I know we want to get to some questions, and very, very briefly, is about Hitler. Hitler, the generals say, is a complete idiot. He can't do anything right, etc., etc. This was a myth very largely created by his own generals after the Second World War with the help of historians like Littlehart and others. Um, and in fact, um, Hitler was an idiot and he did make a huge number of mistakes and he was terrible and everything else, but he wasn't quite as bad as some of the, the uh, Mansteins and, and others uh, made him out to be. Um, so I'll, I'll just throw that out there. And just another, just a little mini myth is, is that we have this picture of Hitler in the Second World War, um, sort of 
dancing around on the Brechtesgarten because of uh, Eva Brown's home movies, and maybe in Berlin in his lovely Albert Speerian paradise, as he thought of it anyway, in Germania, the center capital of Berlin. In fact, he spent most of the war uh, in the Wolfschanze, the disgusting, despicable concrete layers seven meters above him, gloomy, mosquito-ridden bunker fest in, uh, in um, the Wolfschanze. Absolutely dreadful place. I'm sure some of you have been there. If not, um, well, go or it's a bit of a gloomy place, sort of moss-covered and disgusting. But certainly worth a visit if you're interested in the mind of Hitler because you can see the mentality of this, of this crazy man living uh, you know, underneath the, the netting and everything else. If any, any of you have seen the film Valkyrie you, you get a, with Tom Cruise, you get a kind of vision of what it was like up there. So absolutely despicable. And uh, reading the memoirs of, for example, his secretary, you had to listen to uh, him drone on and on about the same subject every evening and they couldn't leave and they all just wished he'd shut up. And speaking of which, <laughs> I am going to stop now and, um, and I think uh, James is going to uh, ask some of you for, for, for mythological or otherwise <laughs> questions about the Eastern Front. We're led to believe that Red Army commanders cared little for the lives of their men. Is this true or is this a myth? No, uh, absolutely um, true. Certainly, uh, if you talk about Stalin, who had absolutely no respect for human life and, and, and didn't value it at all, and, and the mistakes that he made at the, at the beginning, which, which uh, Waitman was talking about a little bit, allowing, you know, not preparing for the, for the initial attack, although he had the information that it was coming, allowing these, these vast numbers of, of um, Soviets to be encircled and turned turn into prisoners of war. He completely abandoned them. So for him, this was, this was horrific. But then it depends on when you're talking about it, because as the war went on, manpower became much more important. 1942, they start to include women, for example, in the, in the Red Army, so about eight 900,000 women serve on the front. Why? Because they're getting short of manpower. This other German myth that, that uh, the Germans were defeated on the Eastern Front just because there were so many Soviets is simply not true. And they started to value human life. And it also depends on which general. Zhukov was notorious for you know, uh, not caring how many of his own men uh, were killed. But if you have somebody like Rokossovsky, who's an incredibly able general, I think Stalin's best, if, if one, not one of the best, or Konyev, they were, they were much more um, aware of the fact that that manpower was an important um, and scarce and becoming scarcer resource. So it depends who, it depends where. And there's something to be said too, I think. Uh, I think in some ways it is a, well, we'll call it a trope maybe, right? Maybe myth is too strong, but there is this trope of just, you know, the Red Army commander with the, with the political commissar behind him with the pistol saying, you know, go forward. The, the famous, you know, what is it, enemy of the gates where it's like, pick up a rifle. Well, if you don't have a rifle, one will become available when the guy in front of you dies sort of thing. You know, and I think there's some of that, right? Um, but it's also just a question of scale. If, if you look at the numbers of human beings that are fighting each other on the Eastern Front versus the West, the casualties are going to be, you know, much larger. And, and there is something to be said, I think, for the, the Soviet way of war, which, which is this sort of have multiple attacks, reinforce success. So you have, you know, three, we're attacking on three, three points of the line and if these two don't work out, and this one does, then these have, these have served their purpose and we'll reinforce this one. And it, it's not necessarily, you know, we don't value human life, it's just this is the way that we're, that we're planning to do things and we can afford to fight this way, right? James talks about this when he, when he talks about like the Shermans and their various tanks, you, you can afford to lose more when you have more to lose. 
And it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't care. It's just it becomes incorporated into sort of the way of war. I yeah, and as, and as yeah. Stalin realized that, that manpower was be, uh, going, becoming short, he changed. This is why Stalin gets better during the war and Hitler just gets worse and worse. Um, because he, 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 for example, reduces the importance of the political commissars, these politrics who stood behind the soldiers that messed everything up. Stalin goes, OK, let's back off on that. Let's bring back some of the old traditional army uh, uh, regalia and, 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 and patterns and so on. Um, and of course, that all ends after the war is over. But he changes, and he uh, improves the Soviet way of And war. ironically, when he's doing that, the Nazis are introducing political commissars. Exactly. So towards the yeah. end of the war, they actually adopt this hated yeah. idea of a, a political politruck with these, yeah. these propaganda officers that now they are doing the same thing. That the, so there's this weird sort of um, you know, reflection of like, yeah. oh, we hate this thing, and now we're going to become it. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, next. Uh, hi. Um, I just want to ask you, wait, when you brought up about the Romanians and the Bulgarians, the myth is that they really got nothing out of it, and they were really rather poor. Um, is, is that a myth, or, or were they effective soldiers? I mean, so what's interesting is that um, Bulgaria, for example, uh, somehow gets away with not providing any soldiers for the, on the Eastern Front, whereas the Romanians and the Hungarians, as you point out, lose massive numbers. Um, and part of this gets to, if we go back to our original, uh, the last question, the, the Nazis' willingness to fight to the last Hungarian. Um, you know, like, <laughs> they, they certainly have no respect for the lives of those soldiers. And so often you will see them get thrown into these sort of forlorn efforts of like, you know, we'll, we'll let them sort of take the brunt of it. And they're, they're more poorly supplied, um, not least I think in some ways because one of the, one of the trade-offs in these, in these alliances between these nation states and, and the Nazi and the Third Reich is um, that these nation states are forced to give up, not forced, but part of the trade-off is ref, uh, national resources. And so, you know, they, they don't have the resources to actually construct tanks and good, good pieces of equipment. They have to sort of use what they have. And that, that also uh, sort of relates to it. Um, I think it's like anything else. You know, the, the Italians, for example, in, in, um, and the Italians are also, by the way, on the Eastern Front, which is a, another sort of lesser known thing. And then when, um, when the Italian government falls, the Nazis arrest them and shoot mass quantities of, of their own allies in that sense. Um, but you know, there's a, I think there's a myth unrelated to the Eastern Front, which is in Africa, like the Italian soldiers are terrible. Were they terrible or were they sort of poorly led? Uh, because my, my suspicion is that the Hungarians you know, fought quite hard because they hated the Soviets um, with a passion. Um, but you know, they're not very well resourced and they're not very well led and they're put in they're set up for failure um, by the German leadership. Yeah, that, yeah. I, I think absolutely right. And, and one thing you didn't want to be was a, was a Romanian or a Hungarian soldier on the Eastern Front <laughs> under the Germans because they were in the tallies. They were, they were beastly to their supposed allies. And, and, and uh, by the end, the Hungarians were just getting thoroughly fed up. So for example, in the Warsaw Uprising, I found a number of incidents where um, the, the Hungarians were supposed to draw this ring around Warsaw, not letting any civilians out. And they were just selling the, the Warsawians guns. They were letting them through, and Hitler got so annoyed that he, he pulled them out of the line. And the same thing uh, with the civilians. It was the Hungarians who were letting, uh, letting the Warsawians go. Um, they were seen to be completely unreliable, and as it turned out in the Warsaw Uprising, they, they were. But it was a terrible role that they were forced to play. Okay, one in the back here, Alex. Hi, guys. I'm um, quite interested about the sort of myth that the only reason the war was won was because of the Russian sacrifice, and kind of interested to hear what your thoughts on that are. Uh, I think one of the problems with that is, again, these layers of memories that we talked about. So particularly 
you know, having grown up in East Germany, that, that is the story that I was told um, at school um, and, and by teachers, even, even well into the 1990s still, uh, with, the, with the same teachers basically still being there telling the same story. And as always along the lines of, yeah, the West helped a little bit, um, but really was it necessary? It was all a, all a sort of anti-Russian campaign, almost the entire Western Front. Um, as opposed to an anti-German one. Um, and so I think that that's part of why that's stuck um, as, a, as a myth, I think. On, on a military front, maybe I'll hand over. <laughs> yeah, but in terms of the, the way that's remembered, I think that's very much a problem um, for um, the national histories that emerged afterwards as well, where, where the Russians were very much putting their foot down, saying, no, this is the way it was, and there is no other interpretation of it militarily and, and socially either. Yeah, and which is carrying on to Soviet, the, the Russians from the Soviet era today, and as Waveman said, the, the, you know, the, the uh, sheer numbers are hard to get a hold of. Mm. But I, I'll have this fight with James for the rest of our lives, I think, about the importance of the Eastern Front, because the Western idea is that, yes, you know, we had land lease, we had Normandy landings, it was so much more important with Africa, you know, blah, blah. Um, but if you, if you do look at the sheer weight of numbers, I mean, when you talk over 9 million Red Army men and women who, who gave their lives, uh, the cost was enormous. When you look also at the intelligent things that Stalin did, as I said, not at the beginning, but moving the factories uh, behind the Urals, um, the production um, in, in the Soviet Union by 1943 was extraordinary. There's this myth that the Soviet tanks were rubbish. It's not true. Look at the T-34. Yes, it's, it's nothing like the beautiful Tiger, but it, you know, it, it effectively won the war on the Eastern Front. The, the number of planes, I mean, it was just an extraordinary effort what the, what the Soviets did, however evil and disgusting their political system and Stalin and however um, many of their own men they lost. And, and the vast majority of, of Wehrmacht and SS guys who died were on the Eastern Front. So, I mean, we can talk about and debate this, this question of how important they were, etc. But the, the sort of dismissal of the, of the Soviet front is, to me, uh, baffling. Well, and this is, I think, another element that's really interesting is you also see here sort of the scholarly shift, right? So, you know, and I'm sort of generalizing, but from 45 to, you know, probably the, the 80s or 90s, there's a very Western focus of like, you know, particularly if you, if you look at my home country, right, where the Americans come to save the day in every war, right? Um, and everything's about D-Day and, and this kind of stuff. And then, you know, there's a swing back as, our, as archives open and people have access to Eastern Europe and, and people want to be sort of intentionally provocative and say, no, 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 it was really all the Soviets part. So there's a sort of pendulum swinging back and forth and then landing somewhere in the middle. Um, but one of the critiques that people often say is, oh, well, just because you took a lot of casualties, you know, doesn't mean that you, that you won the war. And, and I would argue against that in the sense, if you look at things like Operation Bagration, you know, which is timed shortly, two weeks after, um, after D-Day, I think, or, or so that they're close enough there. You know, they have destroyed an entire army group of 200,000 soldiers and killed almost that many in two weeks. And if you look at the American war dead in the entire war, it's 450,000. And so I think, again, the, you, can't, you just can't avoid that. You can't avoid dealing with the fact that the Soviets are not incompetent. They're not just winning by accident. I mean, they are inflicting massive amounts of casualties on a scale that you just don't see elsewhere. And it doesn't mean which you often see on, on Twitter and elsewhere, where it's like, oh, you love Stalin. It's like, no, I don't <laughs> love Stalin. But, you know, the Soviets are, you can say that they are, they, they are good at fighting at some point in the war without sort of, 
you know, going down this other road. And, anyway. and getting better and better. Yeah. Mm. Thanks. Uh, to what extent do you think Russia slash the Soviet Union have uh, mythologized the importance um, and the seismic nature of the Battle of Kursk? Do you think it's been overstressed by Russia? Because I think there's some research in recent years that suggests it's not as important as we thought. Yeah, there's a, there's a great historian called Jan Topol who's, who's exploded the myth of Kursk, rather. He's a fantastic historian, uh, and he's looked into, you know, well, did it, was it really this big turning point? I mean, it's still, of course, an enormously important battle, and if you take it in its, in its entirety, it did really, it was the counterweight to Stalingrad in the sense that Stalingrad meant that the Germans couldn't, with manpower, have another offensive battle, and Kursk did the same thing with the tanks and then the men and material uh, meant that, that, that this was really the end of, of the Germans' attempts to return to the east and try and get to Moscow. So in that sense, it still remains an extremely important battle. But what you find with, the, with what we were talking about, the, the, the Red Army, the mythologizing of the Red Army, was that they did everything. There was absolutely nothing from anywhere else, and that the only battle that, that mattered was Stalingrad, then the only battle that matters was Kursk. And they also ignore the, you know, Zhukov's huge defeats in 1943, for example, enormous losses. Um, which are just sort of glossed over. Uh, in the official, the, the first Red Army Museum was created uh, in 1943, so in the war already. And the censors officially said, you are not allowed to use words like retreat or uh, you know, not allowed to talk about the death tolls and so on. So this mythologizing of the, of the, the great patriotic war began uh, already in 1943, and Kursk is part of it. Can I, can I riff off that just for a second? One of the things, because we talk, we talk a lot about memory as sort of a, a, a common thread through this. And I think Alex just brought up a really great point, which is memory is being created before the war is even over, right? And particularly by the Soviets. Um, and not just with, with the museum, but the Soviets uh, have a wonderful um, organization they created in 1942 called the, I get this right, the Soviet State Extraordinary Commission for the Investigation of Nazi Violent Crime Against the Soviet People. I mean, it's like, it's like 20 words. But in 1942, they have people who are methodically going through recently liberated territories of Eastern Europe and documenting Nazi crimes, down to and including how many pigs they took, um, how many houses they burned, and also, and this because it's my bailiwick, also the Holocaust. And now that gets, as, that gets scrubbed as it gets higher up, by it removes the references to the Jewish um, suffering. But it, if you look at these original, the, the records that are created earlier on, you get a, a memory making of the history already during the war, which I think is a, a fascinating and very much understudied element of the whole thing. But I'll be quiet. Alex, Katja, Wayman, thank you. That's given us plenty to think about.